Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. All right, so we've been working our way through the book of John for a while now, and we have seen Jesus turn water into wine. We have seen him feed the hungry, like a lot of hungry people, and we have seen him heal the sick, talk to people to whom society told him he shouldn't, like the Samaritan woman, and we have seen him even raise the dead. Like, these are all amazing things. He was challenging social norms and showing God's love wherever he went. And so today, we're going to start in John 13, where it's kind of a turning point in the book of John. So let's all open up to John 13, and it will also be up on the screen. And we'll start at verses 1 through 11. Now, before the festival of the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The devil had already put it into the heart of Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray him. And during supper, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God, got up from the table, took off his outer robe, and tied a towel around himself. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was tied around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus answered, You do not know what I am going to do, but later you will understand. Peter said to him, You will never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, One who has bathed does not need to wash except for the feet, but is entirely clean. And you are clean, though not all of you. For he knew who was about to to betray him. For this reason he said, Not all of you are clean. So we kind of start off with a loaded verse in John 13, verse 1. It's like, so rich. And I love that about the Bible. You can like read one verse and you just like study it and you're like blown away by how meaningful it is and how much can be said in just like 12 words. But on the other hand, it's also really easy to miss all that meaning because it can just be in one small verse. So we are going to examine this one because this verse is one you can just like read it and be like, oh yeah, and move on, right? So let's uh, go through that. And just like the prologue in John, John 1, where it says, like, the light does not overcome the darkness, uh, it's a really packed uh, couple of verses. This one is kind of a turning point in the book of John, so it's like a second prologue. And so we're going to see how that is important to the rest of the book of John. So first of all, it says it's about time for the Passover, which, oh, like, you're just telling what time it is, like, of the year. Like, oh, it's almost Christmas. Let's decorate. No, it's telling us something a little bit more important. Because John, the author of the book of John, whenever he mentions a Jewish festival, he wants us to understand that Jesus is applying the meaning of the festival to himself. Now, in chapter 1, John the Baptist, who is not the same as our author, author John, 
He wants us to understand that Jesus is, uh, or John shouts, here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Passover festival includes a lamb that is pure and blemish-free, and it goes to the slaughter as a sin offering. Like it is the sacrifice for our sin. So John, in talking about the Passover celebration here, is pointing towards Jesus being our sin offering as he is a pure lamb who goes to slaughter, i.e. the cross, right? And then in chapter two, Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. But he was not speaking about like the actual temple, like the church. He was talking about his body and how he will die and then resurrect from the dead three days later. And this happens during the Passover festival. And then in chapter 6, Jesus fed the 5,000 at Passover time. And he told them about, here is my bread, the bread and the juice or wine. And he says, this is my body and my blood. And he's talking about his sacrifice on the cross. So in the uh, information about Passover festival, we see Jesus applying the meaning to himself. So as we go on, let's kind of think through like what's happening and notice how the Passover festival information helps us learn that Jesus is applying its meaning to himself in this passage. And the second main part of this verse is about Jesus's hour had come to depart from this world and go to the Father. It's really a bummer of a statement. It's like the turn. It's setting a dark scene for the rest of the book. So if this were a movie and you had subtitles on, it would probably read, ominous music plays in the background, because it's like, dun, dun, dun. And uh, (laughs) because it's like, oh, that's not a good sign. Like, Jesus's hour had come. That doesn't sound like a celebratory thing. But Jesus who's been living an amazing life on earth, as we just reviewed a couple highlights of the book of John. Um, His time with us as Emmanuel, Emmanuel means God with us, his time on earth as Emmanuel is coming to an end. This darkness is kind of hovering over this scene as John takes us into a, a new place. And the statement that Jesus's time had come doesn't just mean, yes, Jesus is gonna die like in the movie Hercules when they try and snip the cord. Like, that's not what it is. It's his death, his resurrection, his hanging out on earth for like 50 days afterwards, and his ascension to the Father's right hand. It's not just the time to die, but it includes all that accompanies that. And then third, amidst the sadness of knowing that Jesus' time had come and having this darkness kind of just land on us, our final stories about the crucifixion, for the final stories, uh, we read that the f- crucifixion is this magnificent act of love. We see the light shining in the darkness, and he says, he loved them to the end. Now let's think back to John chapter 10, which is the parable of the good shepherd, and where we learn that the good shepherd loves his own sheep, and they love him in return. The greatest thing the shepherd can do is lay down his life for his sheep. Love was driving Jesus. His time was coming, but love was driving him to do that. And he was doing it out of love because he is the good shepherd. As sad and as dark as the crucifixion is, the darkness does not overcome the light. And we kind of see that playing out. So now that we've kind of 
unpacked verse 1 a little bit, (laughs) we can move into the rest. We're prepared for the rest of the book of John. So instead of just having all these awesome miracles, we now know that something bad is coming, and we kind of feel that weight. So now we read on, and we discover something really cheery. Satan has convinced Judas to betray Jesus. Just kidding, that's not cheery. Yeah. So as soon as we heard about this magnificent love of God, we kind of noticed darkness creeping in, right? It's like, oh yeah, we just heard about this magnificent love, and now Judas is like coming in, and he's going to betray Jesus and try to undermine his love for the world. We are witnessing a cosmic battle. God versus Satan, light versus dark, We know that big things are coming, and we probably mostly know what's happening. But as we read this story, we are still caught up in the feelings of the darkness creeping in and the love trying to overcome that. And now let's read on a little bit. And during supper, Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God. And got up from the table, took off his outer robes, and tied a towel around himself. Jesus knew his mission. He knew it was coming. He knew it was going to do what he was going to do. And yet he kept going. He got up to wash his disciples' feet. He just didn't call it quits. Like, oh, my time's come. Oh, like, I'm done. He just kept going and kept ministering and kept teaching his disciples. He got up to wash his disciples' feet. Knowing the struggle that was happening and knowing Judas, who was there, was about to betray him. I wonder if you can imagine what Jesus was feeling in these moments where he knows the end is coming and he's with his disciples and washing their feet and knows about Judas. The job of washing feet was typically the servant's job. It was pretty disgusting and not something that anyone who seems very important would do. It's really gross. You get down and you wash their feet and they've been trampling around in who knows what dirt, probably some animal presents, maybe some other nasty things, and he gets down and washes their feet. It's pretty disgusting. But Jesus, when he starts doing this, Peter freaks out and ejects. But Peter misunderstands Jesus fairly often. So it's kind of a laughable scene where he's like, oh, oh, I want to be with you, Jesus, so wash my head and my hands too. And Jesus is like, you just don't get it, Peter. But (laughs) poor Peter. But um, we kind of like can sense that, the laughableness of that scene, but also it's heavy too. It's very serious and, and powerful. It's a very Emmanuel act, God with us. As Jesus came to earth and took off, laid aside his clothes of glory, and was born on earth as fully divine and fully human. He was God with us on earth. And in this scene, Jesus removes his outer coat, outer clothes, and then puts on a towel only to do the lowest, most disgusting job, right? Who would want to clean feet? Like, that would be a very strange desire. Like, but Jesus does it to teach them something and because he loves them. So Jesus humbles himself to be with us. 
Jesus is showing us who God is in this, in this story. When we receive the washing of Jesus, we receive the gift of new life, forgiveness of sin, and redemption. This foot washing is not just any foot washing. It points us to the cross. Jesus was our sin offering on the cross, and he defeated death and resurrection. We are washed clean because of the sacrifice. Jesus must wash us if we are to belong to him. And what we need every day is to wash those parts of ourselves, maybe our attitudes or actions, that need attention as we grow in our faith. Every day we are saying yes to God and choosing to follow him. And of course, this passage ends with a nice little reminder about Judas. Not all of you are clean. Can you imagine the thoughts and feelings within Judas and Jesus as Jesus is washing his feet? Each one of them knows what's happening. Judas probably doesn't know Jesus knows, but he knows that he's going to betray Jesus and he's receiving this foot washing. And Jesus, knowing full well that Judas intends to betray him, chooses to wash his feet anyway. We are noticing the darkness still lurking around as Jesus lovingly washes his disciples' feet and prepares for the supreme act of love in dying on the cross. Let's continue reading, starting at verse 12, going through verse 20. After he had washed their feet, had put on his robe, and had returned to the table, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for that is what I am. So if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have set you an example that you, should also, that you also should do as I have done to you. Very truly I tell you, if you know these things, very truly I tell you, servants are not greater than their master, nor are messengers greater than the one who sent them. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but it is to fulfill the scripture. The one who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I tell you this now before it occurs, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. Very truly I tell you, whoever receives one whom I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. So Jesus, after just washing his disciples' feet, now tells them that they are going to go out and do this. Now, of course, this is the pattern Jesus has set. Now, is it specific to just foot washing? I don't think so. They will take on tasks of service and live a humble life as they demonstrate the love of Jesus. It's not an easy road, is it? They will take a serious commitment to do this. And don't forget, you aren't better than Jesus. A slave is not greater than their master. What a nice little note there, right? To remind us that the human temptation is pride. We selfishly want to be the best or have the most amazing whatever it is and have recognition for it. I mean, have you guys ever watched the show Parks and Recreation? My favorite character is Tom Haverford. He's kind of like a walking disaster and all around hysterical. And during a speech, which was supposed to honor his friend, he decides to make it about himself 
And with an overconfident voice and a larger-than-life attitude, he declared, I'm pretty amazing at being humble. Just pretty funny. It makes me laugh every time. But <laughs> we all know people who say stuff like that, and you're just like, oh. Or we might think it, but we won't say it, because oops. And we try so hard to be humble and kind and loving, and we want to be amazing and be like this amazing Christian that people look up to. Like, oh yeah, I'm a great Christian. But <laughs> it's not bad to try and improve or do better at something. But when it becomes self-centered, it's dangerous because then the only person you see is yourself. You only have eyes for you. And you're basically the evil queen looking into her mirror. And her mirror slave is answering the question, who is the fairest of them all? It's you. But while we worry about ourselves, we miss the people around us. We don't see our coworkers who are having an awful day. We don't see the opportunity to offer them friendship or encouragement. We pass by people sitting outside for money or food so that they can eat, or just simply asking for a smile. We pass by the opportunity to fill their stomachs or demonstrate through a smile that they are human and that they are seen and they're loved. We get caught up in the busyness of our schedules. We all have busy schedules. And we kind of become just focused on getting to our next thing and checking it off the list. And it might be that we're in a hurry to Starbucks so we can get a pumpkin spice latte, or more deliciously, a chai latte. Controversial. A chai latte before we go to work and making sure we can get there in time. It might be silly like that, or it might be important, like getting to work on time, or not being the last parent to pick up his child from school. You don't want that. But it puts us in a stressed mood, and then all we're thinking of is our schedule, our schedule, and thinking about what ha what's happening to us. And we miss little opportunities to show kindness, to show generosity, or to be friendly to the people we encounter who might feel abused, lacking, or friendless. We miss these things because we are focused on ourselves. Jesus calls us to look outside of ourselves and to look at the world where we are serving. I love this quote from N.T. Wright. Where the world's needs and our vocation meet is where we ought to be, ready to take on insignificant roles if that's what God wants, or to be publicly visible if that's our calling. Let me read that again for you. Where the world's needs and our vocation meet is where we ought to be, ready to take on insignificant roles if that's what God wants, or to be publicly visible if that's our calling. It's kind of like a huge good quote. So this pattern of foot washing is not only a picture of tedious, boring, behind-the-scenes work that we might receive attention for or we might not, might go unnoticed. It points to a bigger picture. It points to the cross. As Jesus humbled himself even to death on a cross, may we also lay down our lives and our pride and surrender to God so that we may serve the world that God is working to save and redeem. This is not just a call to service. It's a call to love as Jesus loves. And we may not be thanked or awarded, and maybe nobody even knows what we did. Like maybe we just picked up a piece of trash, which is still important to do. But nobody knows. 
You're not going to get like claps for that. But there's a promise that comes in verse 20 that balances out maybe this ego blow of not being greater than the one who sent you. It's that whoever welcomes you welcomes the one who sent you. It's something we don't think about very much. As we walk into that house, encourage that coworker, sit in the hospital room, maybe celebrate with somebody or feed that hungry man that's asking for food on the side street. It was really Jesus present with them. Emmanuel was with them. Again, this is not just a call to service, but it's a call to love as Jesus loves. Where does your vocation intersect with the world's needs? How can you shine the light of Christ in the darkness as a student, a teacher, an engineer, a parent or grandparent, a nurse, a social worker, a salesman. Our world has endless needs and so many sorrows. It can feel discouraging. Hurricane after hurricane after hurricane. Fire after fire after fire. The vulnerable facing danger. Violence, addiction, failed relationships, sickness, death. It's really a mess. But following the pattern which Jesus has set for us to lay down ourselves so that others may see the love of Jesus can break through the darkness and shine Christ's love. Now we find our way back to Judas. Can't forget about him. So let's turn to verses 21 through 30. After saying this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and declared, Very truly, I tell you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he was speaking. One of his disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter therefore mentioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So while reclining next to Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. So when he had dipped the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. After he received the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Jesus said to him, Do quickly what you are going to do. Now no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought because Jesus had the common purse that Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the festival, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the piece of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. In this passage, we find two disciples who are quite opposite. We have Judas, who is the betrayer of Jesus, and then we also have this beloved disciple, the one whom Jesus loves, which people assume to be John, assumed to be the same author of the book of John, which is kind of a funny way to refer to yourself. But um, yeah, I'm the beloved disciple. Yeah. <laughs> but John, the beloved disciple, he might have been a cousin of Jesus, and he was probably the youngest in the group. He had a special relationship with Jesus. So there he is, reclining next to him. In the Passover celebration, um, it's a celebration of freedom from Egyptian enslavement. Like, that's a good thing to celebrate, right? And it also looks forward to the freedom that the Messiah brings. 
So, in an effort to symbolize freedom, they recline because it's relaxing, right? Like all of you like want to recline, but there's no reclining chairs here. Sad. But <laughs> but it's a relaxed pose unlike a servant who might be sitting like waiting for the next thing to do or someone who's standing up. So it's more relaxed and it symbolizes the freedom that they're celebrating and anticipating. So the beloved disciple and Simon Peter, we were wondering, oh, who would betray Jesus? I can't think of anyone. And they asked Jesus, well, John asked Jesus about who he was speaking. Dipping bread and passing it to somebody was a symbol of friendship. So this, is a, this was a sign of who would betray Jesus. So we're not actually sure if like the whole group has heard Jesus answer this question or if it's maybe just the beloved disciple. But it would make sense to only be the beloved disciple since nobody else really seems to catch what's going on. And, oh yeah, there goes Jesus right after he, or Judas after he ate that bread. Darn, I was trying so hard not to mix up Judas and Jesus. <laughs> but so <laughs> he answers him and so this is a sign of friendship. And that makes betrayal even worse, right? I think we can all identify with being betrayed by a friend. Maybe they haven't sent us to our death. We're all still here. But we know betrayal. And it's a thick pain, and we can almost feel it as we read this scripture. Jesus instructed Judas cryptically. So as far as anyone knew, he was just going off to run an errand or something. He went to betray Jesus, and it was night. Judas had been tempted by the dark to betray Jesus. Jesus is the messenger and the bearer of light. Judas's actions are ushering in the darkness of the crucifixion, of the end of Jesus's time on earth as Emmanuel, God with us. And in the midst of this growing conflict between the light and the dark, I am reminded of the prologue of John again in chapter one. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of the people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. John knows that even the dark actions of Judas is within the overarching purpose of God's love and redemption. The crucifixion is not the last part of this story. It's dark, but it's not the last part of the story. He defeats death and rises in victory. We are saved from the darkness and brought into the wonderful light of Christ. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, just like John the Baptist proclaimed. Just as the purest lamb is a sin offering at the Passover, Jesus is the perfect sacrifice on the cross, and he cleanses us from sin. He is the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And we are saved from the darkness and brought into the wonderful life of forgiveness and redemption. We look outside of ourselves. We look at the world where we are serving. Jesus called us to follow his example, which I think refers more to the loving kindness of servanthood than a literal washing of feet. 
Jesus humbled himself in washing our feet, and he humbles himself in death on a cross. And we also lay down ourselves and leave our pride behind as we serve God where our vocation intersects with the world's needs. This is not just a call to service. It's a call to love as Jesus loves. We also have hope. This story ends with darkness, literally. Judas went out and it was night. But we know that light overcomes the darkness. Jesus rises from the dead in victory and he doesn't stay dead in the grave. We know that God is victorious and this gives us hope for the new life to come. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. I would like to pray something called the Wesleyan Covenant Prayer for us. We can bow our heads and close our eyes. We are no longer our own, but yours. Put us to what you will. Rank us with whom you will. Put us to doing. Put us to suffering. Let us be employed for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let us be full. Let us be empty. Let us have all things. Let us have nothing. We freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you are ours and we are yours. So be it. And the covenant now made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen.